No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Welcome to a special edition of the Life Hack Podcast. Today we have a friend of the show, the, uh, not only a friend, but a, you could say, resident sheikh for the Life Hack Podcast, and that's Sheikh Abdurrahman Murad. We are pleased to welcome you, Sheikh, to the podcast once again. Welcome. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. This was, subhanAllah, a blessing to have you with us because uh, we are in the same city together, able to do the podcast in person. Uh, whereas uh, because you reside in another city, we would have to do it yeah. uh, online. So I think the chemistry, the dynamic is always more special. And I think it's better for the viewers as well oh, when yeah. you're here in person. So in, alhamdulillah. Look, in person always, I prefer that a thousand times over yeah. the online. But alhamdulillah, Allahumma lak alhamd. Nonetheless, it's good to be here. Barakallah fikum, Shaykh. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all the efforts and da'wah that you and the team are doing. Alhamdulillah. Again, the pleasure is all ours, and one, you know, once again for taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule with uh, family commitments, the masjid, the center, everything that's going on uh, to be able to be here um, with us, okay. inshallah ta'ala. Now, Sheikh, uh, I want to start off with something um, that is a little bit controversial. Okay. Uh, there was a clip that was posted on our channel, on our platform, that's garnered a lot of attention, both positive and both negative. Now, uh, we've spoken about this clip in private, uh, about uh, in an academic manner. So mm -hmm. not in a manner that's oftentimes discussed maybe online, which is sometimes um, devoid of the proper etiquettes of how sometimes these mm -hmm. topics should be uh, approached. But we've sp spoken about it in, in, in private, more in an academic uh, type of lens. And uh, before I ask you this question, we can set the context that in general, uh, Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, uh, the scholars of our past, and even the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa many times you have their contemporaries, their students, write descriptions of how they looked or they yeah. we have records of their genealogy their family tree and, and things of that nature their their race their ethnicity mm -hmm. uh their their color how they even appeared so we mm -hmm. have uh many uh examples of this right yeah. now the clip that i'm in uh that i'm referencing is in regards to uh, a claim that Umar bin al-Khattab was black in complexion or that he may have had a, like African ancestry, mm -hmm. okay? Now, uh, can we uh, reliably make that conclusion? Can we reliably academically mm -hmm. make that conclusion that Umar bin al-Khattab was of black complexion and or that you know he had this uh, African yeah. an ancestry, and if, if if not or if so, what is a more accurate narration and, and whatnot? And just uh, you know to be clear, uh, maybe we can, uh, if you can comment of whatever uh, academically result that we arrive at, that this is not indicative mm -hmm. of the superiority of that ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what I mean? It's not like it's, is it, or can we? Can we say because the Sahaba were mostly uh, black or not black that that 
in and of its essence is praiseworthy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the color or the race or the ethnicity. Yeah. So if you can comment on yeah. those uh, particular uh, points. Yeah, so there's a few things over here we want to unpackage. First and foremost, in terms of, you know, how one is favored in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal. So definitely when it comes to one being favored by Allah Azza wa Jal, it's not on account of your skin color, uh, who your parents are, what ethnicity you come from, what languages you can speak, none of that. Mm. It is based upon one's, you know, something that is unknown to all of us, and that is their personal relation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, at-taqwa, in specific. Mm. So on account of at-taqwa, one will be closer to Allah azza wa or distant from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One will become more beloved to Allah azza wa or uh, the opposite. It's all on account of at-taqwa. That is the base. Mm. Um, now, so Islamically yeah. speaking, you see, especially in the West, a lot of rhetoric around um, you know people's ethnicities or the race or or whatever like yeah. you know in relation to that let's keep it in related to in relation to that so you have people say okay i'm proud because i'm black i'm proud because i'm white i'm proud because maybe i'm this ethnicity i'm pakistani i'm mm-hmm. arab i'm lebanese yeah. i'm somali you know what i mean so like is that something that we should show pride in like your yeah. ethnicity or your color well we have a clear uh, mm. uh, text in this, and this uh, is the words of the Prophet mm. where he said, This is a reference, basically, leave it aside, it is rotten. This was you know, said in light of what took place during the Prophet wasallam's time where two companions, they got into a fight, an argument, one being from the Ansar, one being from the Muhajirun, and they called out, Oh, those Ansar, come to my aid. Come, oh, Muhajirun, come to my aid. So that almost caused a division among the companions. Therefore, the Prophet ﷺ addressed this immediately, telling them, فَإِنَّهَا مُنْتِنَا You know, we have a bond that goes above and beyond every dunya-based bond, which is the bond of our aqidah. Regardless of where you're from, I am a brother to you, as long as you hold to La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. So in that regard, we are brothers. We don't look at anything else. And the the example of this brotherhood, we can see clearly from Rasulullah s.a.w.'s time. When Bilal was chosen to become Mu'addin, why was he chosen? Was it because of his skin color? Or his ethnicity? His background? No. It's because the Prophet s.a.w. said that you know, uh, his voice is stronger than your voice. So it's based on something that, you know, that would be needed at that time. There's no microphones back then. So you look at the person who can do the job best, and therefore, he was given that duty. There was another companion who could have, and he saw the dream. Now, initially, the, the whole story of the Adhan, um, when the companions were debating among themselves how they could go about calling people to the Salah. Some said use the bell, some said use a horn. And then, you know, they basically slept on that. And one of the companions, he saw a dream wherein he was given the adhan. He went to Rasulullah and Rasulullah concurred that this is something, you know, that is, uh, we can take it. This is, you know, he concurred that dream. Essentially, it became a sunnah practice thereafter. He didn't tell that companions because you saw it, you can go ahead and make the adhan. He said, go to Bilal, teach this adhan to Bilal because Bilal, he has a stronger, more powerful voice than you. So he's given this not on account or by the virtue of his background, the masa'ib and trials that he went through, it was given to him on account of something very specific. 
So the best man for the job at that time. That's how we view it. Um, and that's how it was during Rasulullah's time overall. Uh, no one was chosen or given preference based on a cultural ground or ethnic ground. That was never the case. If that was the case, you would have seen, for example, uh, the Khulafa al-Rashidun. They would have been from the family of Rasulullah was. For example, that would have been the case. That was not the case. The best person after Rasulullah was Abu Bakr. He was chosen not because of his ethnicity or his background or that he's from Quraysh. No, it's because of his you know, piety, his taqwa, his closeness to Allah Azza wa Jal that he was chosen in this position after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam so so on and so forth Umar radiallahu an with Uthman with Ali radiallahu anhum ajma'in now uh, that in mind I think we go back to what you mentioned initially about Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu an being from a certain you know uh, uh, ethnic background or even let's say having a certain ethnic link or you know um having a certain color tone, a skin uh, you know, a tone that's different from what might be common at that time. Now, before we even go into this and look at the proofs for this, we have to ask ourselves, does it, would it make a difference if Umar was you know, darker in skin tone or lighter in skin tone? I mean, would that make any difference before the Prophet Of course not. It's not based on that, you know, uh, issue that he was given whatever he was given the positions uh, or given that father and favor in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's an account of his iman and his taqwa well why do people make it an issue then why do you think people are emphasizing that as an issue that yeah. needs to be discussed well i think to a great extent this day and age there's been a lot of oppression uh, people are oppressed based on the ignorance that we see overall uh, even in certain muslim communities you'll find the same thing where people begin to uh, distinguish between skin tones and they would prefer a certain skin color and they would make fun of people from different ethnicities. The ignorance that we see from the pre-Islamic era has now become manifest in this day and age. Because of that, we have, subhanAllah, um, in a widespread ignorance, we also have, subhanAllah, the problems that we face today. In light of this, you're going to find, you know, when there's a reaction of this sort, you're going to have a polar opposite reaction as well, where people now, they'll find pride in their color, in their skin tone, in their ethnicity, in their race. It's a natural result of what we're seeing today. So the root cause of this, and you have to address root causes here, not simply, oh, um, how do we look at this or that? No, we look at the root cause. Why is this taking place on either end? It's all ignorance. Yani essentially... A Muslim being ignorant of their deen, the, the, the tradition that we have within this deen, they're ignorant of it, they're distant from the sunnah of the Prophet therefore we have these two reactions. Mm. That's it. Otherwise, if we knew our deen, we would never go down this path, subhanAllah. And we would have front and center, da'uha fa'innaha muntina. Now I'd like to say that, you know, and people might, uh, I might take heed for this, but, you know, in our tradition, Islamically speaking, based on what we see from the Prophet wasallam, a Muslim, technically speaking, is colorblind. What I mean by this, and don't get me wrong, I don't mean any disrespect to anyone, but overall, what I mean by this is that we're not going to judge you or look at you or basically prefer you based on a skin tone. Mm. Whether you are white, whether you are black, or any other skin, it doesn't matter. Mm. Because and, here, and I just yeah. want to, Sheikh, because certain people, like non-Muslims, use that term colorblind yeah. to denote the fact that they don't see color Yeah. Um, in an absolutist sense, but what we understand it from an Islamic perspective is that we're not colorblind in the sense where we don't acknowledge, hey, yeah. if I were to describe you and then say like a book of a biography I'm writing yeah. about, 
Sheikh Abdurrahman Murad. Yeah. You know, I'd write, okay, this is his skin tone, this is his height, this is mm-hmm. how his beard looked, or whatever. Yeah. So I, I write these descriptive, you know, things. So I'm not color colorblind in, in the fact that I don't acknowledge yeah, that, you know. True. But you're we're colorblind in the sense that your value as a human being is not raised or lowered that's based true. on those physical attributes, correct? Yes, yes definitely. That's, that's what I mean by it. Yeah. Because said, this rhetoric yeah. is used by certain, oh, yeah, uh, of course. you know, people on both like the political left, like, yeah. and the right to prove, hey, I, I don't see color. I'm, I just yeah. base people, you know what I mean? But uh, we do see color, yeah. but we don't denote whether a person is yeah. more praiseworthy or less praiseworthy based, based yeah. upon So that. basically, yeah. you know, this term, you can use it, but in a very structured way, as you've mentioned. Mm. You cannot just use it open-endedly because mm. it is being used today in an inappropriate way. Now, look, when I say whatever I said, I don't mean, like I said, any disrespect. But overall, we do acknowledge and recognize that oppression has taken place to people from different ethnicities and backgrounds. They've been put through so much, be they from, you know... Uh, Afro-Canadian descent, or you might have, for example, people from different backgrounds, uh, even native, uh, the native uh, natives that lived this land before the Caucasian man came here overall, you're going to have the same type of oppression that is discussed that we see today outlined. It doesn't mean I'm going to ignore that. No, I recognize it. Definitely took place. And how do you rectify this afterwards? That is different. And unlike, for example, looking at someone in light of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where we're not to be taking sides based on, oh, he's this or that. That should not be the case. But now this being said, the reality is we have a lot of ignorance. We have Muslims who definitely would have that preferential approach to people based on skin tone. It's quite sad, subhanAllah. And the acid test over here, Sheikh, is that when you have someone claiming that they're, they don't see color, right, in that, uh, and they're using it in an obscure way, what they mean by that, we don't know. The acid test over here is that, well, would they allow, for example, their son or daughter to get married to someone from a different skin tone? You'll see at that point, with this issue coming up, that's when, subhanAllah, they might say, oh, I, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. Why? If it's something that's not based in deen of Allah, subhanahu, that's, that, that is inappropriate. But, um, I mean, that is the acid test that I look at. And uh, we should have that in the back of our minds, subhanAllah. Okay. But going back to what you've mentioned now, the point of Umar radiallahu an being of a different skin tone, a black skin tone. Uh, like you said, it doesn't matter to us overall. But since it's been raised and spoken uh, of by uh, certain researchers, we can say, um, we have to look at the proof and evidence. What proof and evidence do we have to prove this point in specific? The reality is uh, the proof is taken from Shiite sources. Uh, those source books, they speak of this not in a positive tone. And this is the sad thing. And it shows you just how racist some people can be even from that time. Hmm. They thought the way that we can demean Umar radiallahu an is by proving that he's from an African descent. To them, they prioritize, okay, a Persian an Arab is first, then you have people from different ethnicities and tones last. So when they spoke about the color and the descent and background of Umar radiallahu an, they spoke of it from this perspective that he was from a different skin tone because he is less. That's Allah al-Afiyah. So if you look at those source books, the Shiite source books are unlike Sunni source books where we have a chain of narration which we can use to prove the authenticity or weakness of a narration. They don't have that. Overall, you'll just find simply, many men have said that many have said that many have said, and this is the narration. So there's no way to prove who those people are. We don't know. But when you look at, compare that to what we have uh, within the Sunni tradition, 
you'll find that every single hadith is you know mentioned regulated by individuals who we can go back to and affirm that each was trustworthy that they actually heard from the person before them and that they lived in the same period as well and that they pass it on in the same condition to the person that took it from them afterwards. So it's a continuous chain of narration that we have within our tradition. And we don't have that for the skin tone or skin color of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. We don't even find that there is any proof that he was from an African descent to begin with. Mm. So, you know, sadly, some might think that this is a positive thing. And like I said, it's nothing to do with the skin tone. But look at the reason why they actually said this about Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. That were, that's where it becomes quite concerning, subhanAllah. Subhanallah. So, what you let me get this straight because this is, I think, of shows um, a new light, or maybe puts a light on this issue in a way that uh, we may not have been aware of. So, the Shia sources, the the, the proof for this, yeah. that people uh, use are Shia sources. Yes, uh, and uh, their motivation was actually to disparage. Yes, Omar bin Al Khattab. Because they looked at being a darker complexion as something that was less than the Arab or the Persian. Yes. Whereas today, people might take that narration unknowingly, Mm -hmm. saying, oh, we found a narration maybe to show, hey, uh, the relevance of black people in in the time of uh, Rasul Sallallahu uh, so they have a different motivation, but they're taking those narrations yeah. unbeknownst to them that uh, it's oh, yeah. actually uh, was planted as a means of disparaging Umar oh, yeah, Khattab. Of course, of course. I mean, if you look at the uh, the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were Sahaba who were from African descent, who were beloved, not just to the Prophet ﷺ, to all the companions. Mm. If you look at the story of Bilal ﷺ, where he was the mu'addin of the Prophet ﷺ, and he would call the adhan, throughout that entire duration, until Rasulullah wasallam had died. Thereafter, he couldn't get himself to call the Adhan. So the narrations, they speak of him having left Al-Madinah. And he came back after a certain period of time. The Sahaba were still living there. So he came and called the Adhan, the Masjid of Rasulullah wasallam, And the Sahaba came out of the houses weeping because they recalled the beautiful times that they had with the Prophet wasallam. The narrations speak of him thereafter saying that it was difficult for him, too difficult for him to go afterwards calling the adhan, you know, after that point in time, subhanAllah. So he was beloved to everyone, not because of skin tone, but because of his taqwa, his piety, and who he was to the Prophet That was the point. You have others, subhanAllah, who likewise, you know, among the companions who came from diverse backgrounds. They weren't favored or distanced simply on account of the background. Look at Salman al-Farisi, radiallahu another companion, Regardless of the complexion here now, he's not from an Arab background. We do have, you know, uh, within certain circles, that preferential approach to who you are based on the Arab tribe that you come from, right? Salman al-Fadis, uh, he's a man of Jannah, as we know, among the great companions, the ulama of the companions, subhanAllah. We even have narrations where he had given advice to companions. And when this reached Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Rasulullah said, Sadaqa Salman. Mm-hmm. Salman has told the truth. I mean, he has that knowledge, that ability to see what is best for a person, you know, subhanAllah. He had that fiqh, essentially. So, yeah, he wasn't preferred based on him being Persian. You had others, Suhaib al-Rumi, for example, who was from an Arab tribe, but overall they called him the Roman because he was, you know, captured, taken, brought it as a slave to Al-Madinah. Long story short, likewise, he wasn't preferred or given that preferential approach based on him being from a different background. That was 
not part of the equation. It was how close you are to Allah, what you've put forth, what you've sacrificed. That was you know, how the companions approached you know, the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nowadays, like I said, we cannot simply just take these stories and bring them back today. We have to first address the, the root problems that we have in society. And once we do address them, we can look at these examples. And I think this is the biggest issue. We look back at the Sahaba's time. Oh, look at Bilal radiallahu an. We can do the same thing. We should be colorblind in this regard. But then we completely overlook the root causes of those problems that we have today in our society. Turn a blind eye, essentially. And we have what we have then, subhanAllah. Allah understand. The chaos, the problems that do arise, the conflict. You cannot work with unresolved issues. You have to resolve them first. Uh, this, in recent uh, times, uh, this has become a pretty um, lightning rod issue in the online Dawah community. Yeah. Now, uh, and that is the philosophical concept of rationalism and whether or not it can be used in Dawah. Is it permissible mm -hmm. to use rationalism in Dawah? Can we use rational arguments mm -hmm. and are there limitations? Well, that's a good thing. I mean, the question is... Uh I think one that is very important, subhanAllah. And, you know, look, I'm not going to say, yes, you can outright, or no, you can't outright. There's going to be a limit, of course. And before I do talk about any of those, I mean, there's a narration that we have from Ali, uh, radiallahu an, where he said, if this deen was simply based upon an intellectual approach or rationalizing everything, it would have been better for a person or would make more sense for a person to wipe the bottom of the hoof as opposed to the upper part of the hoof because that part gets dirty. Yeah, it makes sense. You wipe the bottom part, but you don't. So in essence, we do have, you know, within the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is another thing before I look at the whole thing. In the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have ahkam. These ahkam uh, can be broken down into two broad categories, okay? So ahkam, rulings, that is, from the, in the Quran, in the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallama, that we can rationalize and understand what the purpose behind this actually is. And there are others that it's not a matter of you understanding why. It's simply a testing node, essentially, to see whether you will comply to the command of Allah and His Rasul. Okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have in the hadith, the Prophet wasallam said that when one of you, uh, of course, back in the time, they didn't have running water, of course. So when they would wash their hands, they would have a pool of water, take from it, and then they wash the hand, and then they would perform the wudu with it. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned that, you know, if one of you gets up from sleep, let them wash their hands before they actually, you know, dip their hand into the, into the water utensil. Uh, and the reason given in that hadith is that you don't know where your hand actually was during the night. Now, that's important. If we're to basically monitor our hand, put it in a, in a let's say you tie your hand in a glove that cannot be undone. And then you basically tie it to the uh, to the bed, or it's put together in a way that you can you know exactly where it's going to be. Let's make it even more interesting. You put a camera on yourself for some reason to monitor where your hand actually went the entire night, and you can go back and view that entire clip as to what you did every moment of the night. Now, Subhanallah, we know for a fact where your hand is. The question comes up: um, Am I still required to wash my hand before I? have performed the wudu? The answer is yes. Because this is not a thing we rationalize and look at. It's a testing node. Are you going to comply or not? So there are certain 
ahkam or rulings in Quran, in the sunnah of the Prophet that serve this specific purpose of seeing if you will comply as a mu'min, if your iman is up to that level where you would say, Sami'na wa ata'na. Mm. Right? I was thinking more in the realm of aqidah. Yeah. You know, that's where it's being, uh, the, the primary focus is, is like on, on online da'wah, when you're giving yeah. da'wah, especially in Western liberal societies, you're yeah. usually engaging with atheists. Mm. And so you're trying to prove the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala based yeah. on pure reason. Yeah. Or if you want to generalize, we want to prove unseen matters yeah. based solely on, on reason alone, right? Yeah. Um, so like where, you know, are we allowed to use that in da'wah and uh, yeah. are there limitations if we are Look, allowed can, to use that? You can that? use rational arguments. Hmm. I'd say that now we're, I'm not gonna, I was talking quite broad before, but yeah. now going back to a point where we're looking at um, proving the existence of Allah Azza wa right? So the scholars have looked at this in the past and they've actually given rational arguments for the existence of Allah Azza wa You'll find Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi doing that. You'll find Imam al-Shafi'i rahmatullahi doing that as well. Um, but that was along with the other proofs that they had that they would use for Quran, the Sunnah, and then they would use this approach. Of course, the approach that you're using would differ based on the person you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a person who's an atheist that comes to you and asks you for proof of Allah's existence, giving a proof from the Quran will not do much. Giving them the hadith of Rasulullah wouldn't do much either. But going down the route of discussing with them in this rational manner, that will, to an extent, it might you know, uh, convince them, they might have more to think about, whatever the case be. So we find the ulama using this. Now the problem is when this becomes everything and you begin to dis- discard the Quran and the Sunnah of Rasulullah So that is the problem that we that we that we face. A person should build a rational argument around the verses and the ahadith. So you have a a sound basis for that argument, right? And then you can move forward with that argument and you can design it the way that you want and you can use that approach. Sometimes when you use a rational argument that's devoid of this, it might come back to bite you and basically harm you and destroy your own arguments in a different area of the aqidah. So, I mean, that's to have in mind that you can use it, but be careful and watchful as to how you're using it. And I would not at all advise a person who's a novice in this field to go about using rational arguments of that level mm. because if you're not that well-versed in you know these concepts, uh, you might say something that would come back to destroy your argument or in the eyes of those who are listening to you, it appeared that you are unable to prove the existence of Allah Azza wa Jal and the one that you're debating with has a greater argument than you have. So you got to be very careful how you approach this. And I, like I said, would never advise a person who's a novice in this field to go about doing it. Other thing is that, you know, um, gaining uh, knowledge and know-how about this shouldn't be one's ultimate goal. You're to learn your deen. As we said, you base these arguments based on the arguments that we have in the Quran and Sunnah. This is how the ulama of old actually did this. You have Ibn Taymiyyah rahmatullahi alayhi and other scholars who followed suit with those rational arguments, but they were based upon, you know, uh, we call them adilla aqliya. To an extent, they have a root and a base in the Quran and the Sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Would this be considered ilm al-kalam? Yeah, to an extent. You can say that, yes. Philosophy overall, yeah. What's the difference between ilm al-kalam and uh, philosophy? Well, look, um, there Philosophers, is you have, yeah. it's a field of knowledge where you have certain concepts that we can take, building your argument, how to basically go about presenting this argument. Those are taught when we have 
المنطق and you learn this in the field of usul al-fiqh so it's basically building you to become a better communicator to communicate things properly thoroughly and you know uh, there are certain times where you look at the flaws of your uh, opponent in an argument being able to distinguish where the flaw is and to hold it against them it's a whole field in of itself whereas tr- open philosophy without this basis is you're going back to the uh, uh, to the you know the words and discussions of non-muslims Uh, be it Plato, be it Aristotle, and others. So, subhanAllah. So, falsafa would be more of uh, an, uh, a Greek, rooted in Greek yeah. philosophy, yeah. whereas ilm uh, al-kalam maybe has some... Refining to it? Yeah. It still has those elements too, but there's okay. some refining over there, yeah. Okay. So, you're taking what would, what would not go against the Quran and Sunnah. Um, but even then, uh, you have people who are deeply involved in uh, these types of... Uh, fields and they lost themselves mm. they spent too much time on them and i'm not going to mention names of scholars but there were some who subhanallah they said that we saw this shaykh who was deeply involved in this field of philosophy uh, and we put a mark on his foot mm. right just to see if he had made wudu so over the course of three or four days that mark still remained right there it should have been washed off by the water but it was not washed off by the water mm. So this is without, without mentioning names, but this is something that we see, subhanAllah, uh, being documented back, you know, hundreds of years ago, subhanAllah. So there's a distinction, but overall, I mean, um, even if you're going, going to delve into any of this, you delve into it with, uh, not by yourself. I would, uh, you know, uh, caution one to go simply read a book and then uh, purport themselves as, a, as an expert in a certain field. You need, to be, you need to learn this properly and root yourself first in Quran and in Sunnah before you go about with this. Yeah, because we have certain, like, it's almost like a conflict with uh, du'at online in recent yeah. times where, uh, you know, you have quotes uh, by certain uh, scholars and ulama against mutkallameen, like, yeah. very hardcore, don't go near them, don't learn yeah. from them, etc., etc., And then we do see, though, like as you mentioned, Ibn Taymiyyah, yeah. rahimullah, you know, coming up with uh, rational arguments, but okay. as you said, grounded within the framework of the Quran and the Sunnah, yeah. to essentially elucidate or communicate with a person who hasn't accepted the Quran and the Sunnah as the foundation of their aqidah or yeah. their uh, foundation of any source of truth. Oh, yeah. So um, that's... So, so, For the average person, um, how do we get not caught up in like this conflict of absolutists? Like, okay, we need to mm-hmm. be able to delve in pure reason and our re- and any. It's like the reason your faculty of reason is the filter yeah. of what you you know. Like in in hadith, we're going to have different gradings of mm-hmm. whether whether we're going to accept the hadith or reject the hadith. Yeah. Whereas the grading, like it's like the filter of their aqidah is uh, reason, if it appeals to my intellect, that's one extreme. Yeah. And we have to be able to use this with, you know, uh, non-Muslims. And then the other extreme is that, no, you cannot use this whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, we should just um, appeal only to the fitrah of like the human being. Yeah. And just, we don't have to prove through reason or rationality that Allah SWT exists. Yeah. So the middle ground that we should... Um, well, I, I, I always, people have come to me asking me this yeah. question. I want to delve into this field. I want to really, it seems so interesting. Mm. Problem is, let's say we have um, someone who accepts Islam or is drawn to Islam on an argument, a rational argument that sounds impeccable, amazing. Tomorrow, they can leave Islam likewise on another argument that seems impeccable because you don't have that grounding of the Quran and Sunnah within them. You go even a step further where you might have someone who, subhanAllah, does, uh, he's a Muslim, 
raised, born, but never studied Islam properly. So basically a cultural Muslim. They can be in Islam and then suddenly can lose their faith entirely based on what? An argument, a discussion that pulls them from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to me, it's really important that a person, they ground themselves first and foremost in the deen of Allah azza wa jal, and then they can move forward. If they want to learn certain things about this field, uh, this knowledge, don't do it by yourself. Sit with an alim who is well-versed in Quran and in the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And then if they're going to go into this field of usul al-fiqh where you will study certain elements, khayran, why not? You can learn you know, how to rationalize certain things and present a proof in a proper way. Um, but if you don't have that grounding, It'll be haphazard at best, subhanAllah. And you might even lose yourself in the midst of that, subhanAllah. Allah al mm. There is a claim in the same vein. We'll, we'll try to stay within this because uh, a lot of topics come, you know, yeah. essentially descend uh, from this idea of uh, aqidah and how do we conceptualize our aqidah. Uh, there is a claim that most Muslims uh, are ashari. Based, okay. or they, they follow the Ashari Aqidah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this true in your estimation? Is this a true claim? And that and does that mean that it's closer to the truth than the Athari Aqidah? Well, look, you have, historically speaking, um, when these madahib were, or came about within the, uh, within the Aqidah, you have madahib in the Fiqh, you have madahib in the Aqidah, um, the Hanbali approach, you have the Ash'ari and the Maturidi approach. Ash'ari predominantly are going to be um, uh, Shafi'is. Um, the Maturidis will predominantly be Hanafis. And then the Hanbalis are Hanbalis. Um, so those three kind of formed. And you have some scholars today who say that, well, all three are, you know, um, okay. Problem with that, we do have, you know, over the ages, things have kind of shifted and evolved. Uh, so the Ash'ari that is today an Ash'ari, if you compare his precepts of the Aqid and what he holds to firmly, it'll be unlike, for example, what you see in the past from Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari himself. Different. Hmm. So the principles of these madahib, they've been, you know, uh, to a great extent, they've evolved and they've come to what they are today. Now, um, what you've mentioned about the majority of Muslims being Ash'ari, Allahu A'lam, because the majority of Muslims are Jahil. Hmm. Quite honestly, forget the issues of aqidah, Sheikh. If you look at Dr. Said, if you look at um, Muslims today, forget about anywhere else. Talking about Alberta, the youth, how many of them perform salah five times a day? How many of them, you know, uh, uh, do the other important parts of their faith entirely? You'll find that they're slacking off, not because they don't want to do it, simply because they don't know. And I've had conversations with so many Muslim youth who, subhanAllah, I was shocked with. They don't perform all the salawat. It's not that they're bad people. These people, mashallah, in terms of their akhlaq, they might be amazing. But they're unaware that this is wajib upon them. So they were brought up in an ignorant way, culturally Muslim. That's it. They were taught your work, your school is more important. Okay, if your work in school is more important, your deen is something of a second afterthought. Allah will forgive you if you fall short. A person like this, can I call him Ash'ari or Maturidi or Hanbali? He's nothing. He doesn't know how to perform salah, how can, let alone the issues of aqidah. The reality is the vast majority of Muslims today in the world, they operate on emotions only, not based on a approach of, uh, you know, uh, fahim, understanding, knowledge. They're ignorant. And this is, we have to understand this reality. So for a claim of this nature, this magnitude, most Muslims are Ash'ari. I highly doubt that. I believe most Muslims are ignorant in this regard. Ignorant of their aqidah. That's yeah. actually um, 
uh, I think an uh, an important way to differentiate because yeah. a lot of them they don't even know the reason why they're doing uh, certain things. So then let's look at it from the educational institution level. Mm -hmm. So most of the Islamic educational institutions across the world, yeah. would you say they are uh, promoting an Ashari uh, aqidah and then you know by extension like you know in the, in the Hanafi world Maturidi yeah. or do you think it's uh, an Athari? Well, to that extent, I can't really give you a, a clear response because when I was in Malaysia, for example, um, you're not taught aqidah unless you take specialized courses in the aqidah. Hmm. The vast majority of the universities specialize. So you will have, for example, specializations in halal foods. You might have in, in financing. So let's say you enter into the halal food industry or financing industry. You're not going to be taught anything on aqidah whatsoever. Hmm. So if you were ignorant about your aqidah beforehand, you're going to come into this with a master's or doctorate degree, knowing your field very well, but that's it. Beyond your field, you'll have no idea. So many of them are specialized universities that teach a very specialized approach. Um, you might find universities that take an all you know, packaged approach where they teach you everything, like in Saudi. Um, they use a Hanbali approach there. And I can comment to that because I studied there as well. But beyond that, I can't really comment to any other. Allahu A'lam. I mean, we, we see, the problem is we have assumptions. And if you're going to assume that, okay, they are, what proof do you have to back that statement? I don't. Allahu A'lam. But would you say that there is um, a significant amount, for example, of the people on the Ashari Aqidah? Once again, like, um, let me take Fort McMurray as a specific example. We have brothers and sisters from all the madahib there. Mm. I have taught, alhamdulillah, um, al aqidah tahawiyah multiple times. Uh, and it's one, one of the, uh, the books of Aqidah that I find to be very beneficial because it has everything you need to know as a Muslim in terms of your Aqidah. I've taught it the way that I've taught it and not a single person has ever come up and said that this is wrong. They all accepted it wholeheartedly. So if there was and someone... You, and you've taught it from the Hanbali perspective. Hanbali perspective, yes. But if there was someone who adhered strictly, and these are not just Ammis that are listening to me, there are a lot of brothers who have a ma'rifa, a knowledge, students of knowledge, who are sitting in the halaqat, listening, I have never had one person come up and say, I don't agree with this, it's wrong. They have all accepted wholeheartedly. I've taught Lum'at al-I'tiqad for Ibn Qudama rahmatullahi alayhi multiple times. Never once have I come across someone who came up and said, this is, I don't agree with this. I am this or that. Everyone has accepted wholeheartedly. Not a single person has ever come out to refute this uh, this aqidah, this hanbali, I'm, I'm ash'ari. People, like I said, majority people are am. They might be like, the odd person here or there that may disagree with you or don't take the Hanbali approach, they take an Ash'ari approach. But even if they do, I've never seen a conflict break out based on this in the communities that I've taught in. People have come together and they've coexisted in a way that, you know, we adhere to the Quran and Sunnah as being the resources that we hold to, that we, you know, uh, if you have a conflict, go back to the Quran and Sunnah, alhamdulillah. So I, like I, it's difficult for me to answer that question as if, uh, as to say, if the majority are Allahu A'lam. Like I said, this is a claim that we hear often, but what evidence is there to back that claim? Hmm. I've yet to see it. I have uh, a theory, Sheikh, uh, of why it, there is such a pre, uh, you know, predisposition, or you could say, uh, a great amount of people following the uh, the Ashari school or yes. you know the the aqidah. and I like to share it with you and, and yes. see your comments on it because uh, I think this is a yeah. good time to have these types of conversations mm -hmm. uh, to look at things from different lenses. So 
as we know during the 10th you know till 12th century yeah. that essentially the muslim world was dominated by the shia so the fatimid empire yeah. so a ismaili branch of shiaism was essentially the most powerful islamic empire at that time mm-hmm. the abbasid khilafa was almost like a figurehead mm-hmm. not much power and and whatnot so ahl sunnah you know unfortunately at that time was uh, in a state of decay and survival mode mm-hmm. now you had at that time maturidi you had uh, ashari and as you mentioned maturidi most of you said the ahnaf uh, the um, the uh, ashari most of them were uh, you know Shafi. shafi'i and the hanbali uh, you know uh, were 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 existent as well now to th- there was a desire to revive the ahl sunnah and there was facts so there's politically there was division amongst muslims yeah there was madhahib wise division amongst mu- muslims and then we see this within the aqidah as well mm-hmm. so there was a lot of division mm-hmm. and there were because they were in such a state of decay you didn't even have the khilafah being able to represent the muslims very effectively yeah. as we know uh you know the, at that time it was the zangit empire that took the banner to it's not even the official khilafah right yeah. they took it and the khilafah was always with them just as a figurehead and then uh, the ayyubid di- dynasty afterwards so there was a movement to unite mm-hmm. ahl sunnah to yes. revi- to help you revive ahl sunnah and you saw nizam al mulk you know the whole nizamiya schools the madar- yeah. the madrasas uh begin you had figures like uh, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali mm-hmm. all of these types of figures to try to revive ahl sunnah yeah you know and uh it seemed that uh the it was more politically motivated to essentially bring everyone to the table together so what was the most middle way to bring people together so you did have a, uh, the mutazila as well and you know it's like you have maybe the mutazila on one end and you have the um hanbali who are very strict on the other end it seemed that uh Nizam al-Mulk just wanted to bring everyone together. And they looked at even the aqidah, okay, the ashari is balanced. It's not like the mm-hmm. Mu'tazila, it's not so hardcore mm-hmm. as the uh, Hanabila. So it was a way, okay, let's. it's a balanced way yeah. we can bring people together. And I don't think it was because scholars came together and say, this is the truth and all the madrasas need to be teaching yeah. the ashari school. I think it was more politically motivated to unite and revive Ahl Sunnah. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, the reason why I say it's politically motivated and not ideologically mo- motivated that oh, the Ashara are on the truth yeah. and that's why we have to uh, promote it is because when these madrasas started to open, they allowed other madhahib and other um, aqidah to be taught. Yeah. And because, you know, I, I've had discussions with some people who are hardcore Ashari's and say, you know, Salahaddin Ayyubi was Ashari. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, Muhammad Al-Fati, you know, he was Ashari Aqidah, right? Mm-hmm. That that was the whole reason we see this is because these madrasas actually served as the spiritual framework of the revival of Ahl Sunnah. Yep. Like if you, you wouldn't have the Shia empire being overturned by the Zangid and the subsequent Ayyubid. Yeah without this framework because it was actually scholars mm-hmm. that went around giving da'wah trying to unite the muslims uh you know calling people to fight and yeah. against the crusaders because at that time the shia obviously were mm-hmm. the ones um that had the greatest power in the muslim world and then you had crusaders at the same time 
mm-hmm. you know, dividing, conquering, up to, of course, the, we know they took over Jerusalem, yeah. right? And the reason um, why I, I kind of reflect upon this is because if you look at the relationship that Salah ad-Din Ayyubi had with Ibn Qadama, yes, so you know how you talk about Ibn Qadama, mm-hmm. and he's Hanbali, yeah. and you know he's on this Athar Yaqida, he built uh, madrasas. Salah ad-Din Ayyubi, he's coming from the Nizami schools, and he's also like you know, taking the 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 baton from, you know, Nur ad-Din Zengi and from him before him, Imad ad-Din Zengi. Mm-hmm. So these are all coming from Nizami schools and they uh, they're, they understand that the framework are these madra- madrasas, right? Of course. But he is opening madrasas that are Shafi. He's opening madrasas that are Hanafi. He's opening uh, madrasas that are Hanbali. Yeah. So if he was uh, like singularly focused on opening those type of madrasas that are only Shafi and Ashari, mm-hmm. then he would never have allowed, uh, you know, for example, Muwaffaq ad-Din ibn Qudama rahimullah to teach and yeah. to be with him in jihad, fighting fi sabilillah, yeah. and learning from him and deferring to him yeah. and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I see it more uh, as like when these schools were meant to aspect, uh, to just basically try to bring everyone to the table, yeah. they expanded, they proliferated, mm-hmm. And these schools actually, the first time in history was that it was meant actually to produce jurists and legal administrators and government administrators on a mass scale. Yeah. So this was the first time in history. And so if they're coming from these Nizami schools and they're filling in government positions, like that, that was the whole idea, especially to usurp the influence of the Shia, was to produce like all of these people to work, because you know in government, yeah. It's not necessarily the head that controls, it's like your infrastructure, yeah. right? This is what they call the shadow government, you know, mm-hmm. that, that essentially uh, runs mm-hmm. your day-to-day and actually has more permanence than like yeah. leaders that can come and go. So uh, because of that, and I think that also affected the Ottoman Empire up, till, up until the Ottoman Empire, right? Because yeah. we see, uh, you know, things being codified further under these different empires, mm-hmm. and you see more of the beginning of the seedlings of the modern state. And you know, the modern state is very bureaucratically based, you know, and especially of how it maintains influence within its landscape. So in my estimation, this is one of the reasons why I feel that the Ashariya Aqidah was so entranced, because we know, for example, Azhar. That was a Shia institution. Mm -hmm. The Azhar was a Shia institution. Salahuddin Ayyubi, you know, brought it back to Al-Hasunnah, well, brought it to Al-Hasunnah. It was not even Al-Hasunnah to begin. Yeah. yeah, he transformed into Al-Hasunnah, mm-hmm. right? And of course, him coming from those schools, being Shafi, the pre- the the preference would always have been given to the Shafi and the Ashari Aqidah, right? Yeah. And so I'm just obviously, um, yeah. you know, taking him as one of the major figures. But this is my, uh, you know, essentially assessment of like yeah. taking historical circumstances yeah. into the equation of why it had such an influence and a long-standing influence uh, yeah. amongst the Islamic educational institutions. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's a, quite an interesting ast- uh, assessment, Barakallah and you know, it does make sense. Um, kind of thinking back, because you were talking, um, you know, decadence of the Sunni, remnants of the Sunni uh, Khilafah, so to say, in Al-Andalus. So I'm going there, you know, you had at one point two Khilafas established. Uh, the Umayyad Khilafah of Al-Andalus under Abdurrahman uh, al-Nasr. Uh, 
the most, or you can say the strongest Khalifa that had come to Al-Andalus. It was at its pinnacle, but then subhanAllah, as things you know, moved on, you got to a point where they were so weak, subhanAllah, and divisions were all abound in that community. Scholars indicate that one of the reasons that this collapsed, subhanAllah, and they were consumed in all of this, is that you even had the khutaba during the khutbat al-jum'ah. He should have been addressing issues that concerned the society at that time, whereas he would go up and talk about how you should move your finger for a tahiyyat. Is it a fast motion, a slow motion? Mm. And, you know, uh, coming to a conclusion, the very end of it, imagine a khutbah where the khatib is talking about something so trivial. It's not trivial, but I mean, in the in, in, in the face of all that you're facing in society, uh, life and death situations and whatnot, and you, the khatib has chosen to speak on this issue of a tahiyyat, how you move your finger. Not even about tahiyyat itself, but just how you move your finger. So imagine the khatib would have chosen this topic in such a critical time, subhanAllah. Mm. And because of that, this is one of the hallmarks or the signs of that era where things just went crashing down, subhanAllah, and they, the Muslims lost control of that region, subhanAllah. So that was one of the reasons. And you had takfir. In addition to that, it was very common. Small matters. And takfir basically would destroy a society and you'd have people, you know, uh, consumed with that hatred towards each other, subhanAllah. They'd get to the point, you're kafir, khalas. We don't have nothing to do with you. So you, what you've mentioned right now kind of brought that to my mind and I kind of think back to it and think, subhanAllah, true. Uh, all that we see in that period was a form of, you know, uh, it was a group effort where, subhanAllah, they tried to, their best to uh, strengthen the ummah when it was at that weak state. And that would mean to bring forward ulama who were able to address issues that were common, the rational arguments at that time, people are sending doubts and misconceptions in the community, specifically from the Mu'tazila. Yes. So if you look at some of the scholars today, they say that, you know, back then, during those times, the Hanabila, the Asha'ira, and the Maturidiyah were considered Ahlul Sunnah, versus who? The Shiites and the Mu'tazila. Exactly. So they were basically on a war path against all these other groups. And, you know, you find, for example, uh, Al-Baqillani, among the great scholars of that era, who subhanAllah had written such amazing refutations of the Mu'tazila. Um, we look back at his work still today and review them and study them, subhanAllah. Although he was an Ash'ari, right? Yaman Nawawi, rahmatullahi Ibn Hajar, who held, you know, um, the in terms of the Asma'ullah wa Sifatullah, the Ash'ari creed in regards to those areas. But we're not going to discredit them and put them aside. These are great ulama of this ummah, subhanAllah, thinkers who brought about a revival overall, subhanAllah. So yeah, they, your assessment, I agree with it entirely. And it's quite interesting, subhanAllah, uh, that you put it in that way. But, you know, alhamdulillah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, because, you know, subhanAllah, like, and, and that's why I started off by saying that, you know, like to see whether that assessment is true because there is, I would say, yeah. a significant amount of uh, people who think, I don't, I don't think they totally un even understand yeah. the Ashari Aqeedah, but they think they're upon the, uh, the yeah. Ashari Aqeedah. And what is basically the reasoning behind that? You know, what, yeah. why? And is that necessarily true just because there is a huge, uh, you know, amount of people? There's a mm -hmm. huge uh, prevalence perhaps, you know? Is that necessarily, because for example, Al-Ma'moon, mm -hmm. you know, he yeah. tried to introduce and codify within his khilafah the uh, Mu'tazila, correct? Yeah. You know what I mean? So that does that mean that uh, Imam Ahmed, rahimullah, is, uh, you know, uh, because he's like the lone person, one of the few people standing yeah. up against him, was, is that an evidence now? Okay, because most people, the, khila, the khalifa, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I think in in most instances we should see like we should differentiate yeah. what were the geopolitical circumstances at that time oh, yeah, because that's very different than scholars coming together uh, with different right. opinions and then presenting their truths and then you see like a general consensus arrive out of that. You know what I mean? That's I think a different process where we I think. Uh, a lot of the um, conclusions or a lot of the things that we're left with, whether it's rulings or whether it's um, issues of aqidah, yeah. uh, we think that it came through that uh, pure type of academic process mm-hmm. where actually a lot of times it may be like, okay, I'm willing to con- concede this because there's a greater geopolitical background at play and issues that are at play. Yeah. You, you understand what I'm saying? I, I do. I'm, I'm just thinking back to what you said that, you know, many do claim to be a Shari. I think to an extent what we have today is people saying that I am Hanafi, yeah. I am Shafi'i, I am Maliki, I am Hanbali, for example. Yes. So they don't mean that I, I specifically follow the, the ideals taught by Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. Yes. No, I'm Shafi'i. What does that mean today? Well, to an extent it means... They're told that the Shafi'i yeah. have Ash'ari Aqidah or the Hanafi. Well, this is your... Yeah. Uh, but with, you know, the amma, yeah. with the yeah. Amma, yeah. with the Amma, uh, yeah. you'll have a person saying, I'm Shafi'i. What does that mean? Yeah. It means how I pray my salah. Yeah. For example, and this is the biggest issue. If I'm a Shafi'i in Hajj, if a woman touches my hand... Well, it was broken just by touching. Hmm. So they're concerned. So some of them come up and t- tell me, can I switch my madhab for, so that I'm safe? I can be a Hanafi for the duration of my... So, yeah. <laughs> but these are issues that do come up. So you have people that speak about it in this way. So to an extent, if you're going to look at it that way, that a person you know, entirely thinks that I am Shafi'i and I also adopt the uh, Ash'ari Aqidah that is associated with the Shafi'i madhab, okay. Mm-hmm. See, another issue is that, you know, and this is outside the whole topic we're discussing right now. If you look at the aqidah of Imam Abu Hanifa himself, as opposed to the aqidah of Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, rahmatullahi alayhi, you'll find that Abu uh, Mansur al-Maturidi's aqidah is different, but it's now tied intrinsically with the Hanafi madhab. Mm. You'll have uh, Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi, for example. Likewise, where, you know, if you look at his aqidah and what he said in it, it's unlike what Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari rahimahullah has said, but now it's become intrinsically part and part together, one. And the same goes, the Hanbali madhab has survived that. So you have, like if you say I'm Hanbali, what you mean is that I am Hanbali in terms of my fiqh and in my aqidah. But this is only for a person who studied, right? So that's the thing. If you've studied the madhab, you know it. You'll be taught this. But if you have not studied and you're just culturally brought up, I can guarantee you, anyone who's been culturally brought up, if you sit down with them and ask them, is this the Ash'ari Madhab? Is this the... They won't know. Mm. It's just a, it's a label. I am Shafi'i Ash'ari. And I think that's, that's the difference with the Hanbali Madhab. Yeah. It seems like there's more of an emphasis yeah. on the issues of Aqidah. Oh yeah, there is, there is. You know, like the biggest issues come up with Asma'ullah wa Sifatullah, the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, but even when I discuss this in a academic way with brothers... Uh, who take by the Maturidi or the Ash'ari approach, um, we all go back to one ayah. Hmm. That's it. Hmm. So, you know, if I'm going to come and force a person, believe A, B, and C, he's not going to agree to that. But in the end, I hold firmly with my life to this verse. Simple as that. So they will interpret it differently. But from a Hanbali perspective, it's different as well. We hold to that, you know, the Asma'ullah that are mentioned in the Quran, in the Hadith, the Sifatullah likewise. We take them as they are, but we don't give it a kayfiyyah. We're not going to give it a, um, you know, a descriptive uh, formula. It's this, this, this. No, it is as Allah has mentioned it. 
And there's a statement for Imam Ibn Qudama rahmatullahi alayhi. That's kind of profound here. We looked at the uh, names and attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal. You know, the hand of Allah, for example. Uh, Yadullah. Bila kaifin wa ma'na. We're not going to give it a description. We're not going to give it a specific meaning from our own side. We leave it as is. Whatever Allah has meant, we believe in that. Khalas. So it's that kind of format that we approach. But then, you know, others say, no, I want to actually define this, what it actually means. It means this, this, and this. Hmm. But then that can bring a whole different argument then. Um, and this is what we find with Imam Malik, rahmatullahi alayhi, when he was approached by a person, ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arshi stawa, right? He said, uh, this is what Allah says, but can kayfa stawa? How has Allah azza wa jal, you know, uh, performed this istawa? So here, Imam Malik, rahmatullahi alayhi, gave a very specific approach that we can use ourselves in every ism sifa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, which would be, uh, this is known in terms of the linguistics, right? Uh, but in terms of the how, Allahu A'lam. In terms of your iman, you must believe in it. Asking about this further beyond these three, it's bid'ah. That's the approach that we use overall. But then, you know, um, like I said, in the past, there's been scholars who've been delving into this issue further. The point is, I don't think we should make this an issue of contention where we fight with each other. Do you think that we find history repeating itself because, especially with, maybe not just even Muslims in the West, just because of the rise of atheism yeah. and the fact that now you're, you, you're almost di- diverging, whether you like it or not, into a lot of rational type of arguments. Yeah. It, it's almost like we see like a neo Mu'tazila, oh, yeah. like, you know, approach mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of pulling people towards, you know, that oh, stream. Yeah. Do you see history repeating yourself just because you see this mm-hmm. rise of atheism and this engagement? And, you know, like the atheist mindset has a big stranglehold on a lot of academic, yeah. you know, secular academic institutions. So you have to engage with them. Oh, yeah, of course. You know what I mean? So do you see history well, kind of repeating itself? To an extent, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I do see that. And, you know, what you've mentioned about the neo-Mu'tazila, yeah. That's a term that I heard from before, and I wholeheartedly agree with that because you do have people following that path of complete, you know, a rational approach, intellectual approach, at least from their perspective, and cutting that from the Quran and Sunnah. So they're ready to deny parts of the Quran and Sunnah if it somehow goes against the rational argument that they put forth. They won't tell you, but if they present it with a certain ayah or hadith, they'll say, no, no, we have this argument, it's structured in this way, we can't deal with this right now, subhanAllah. So yeah, I think that there is a resurgence of that, subhanAllah. And um, it kind of fits in with the hadith the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us. It's a prophecy. So Islam will be undone. And this is the imagery Rasulullah gives in this hadith is profound. Because he gives the, you know, like Islam being a strand of rope. Just to picture all the individual strands tied mm. together to give it that strength. He said Islam will be undone. Strand by strand. The very first thing to be lost is what? Ruling by the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of Rasulullah. The last thing to be lost is the prayers. Now, if this was back then, how about today? Where are we at today? Subhanallah. Mm. And this is the problem. We have people who want to delve into these types of discussions and learn about philosophy to become the best debater. Khairan. But where where are you at in your terms of your relation with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala? That is an afterthought. It's not a big deal. Or for some, it's more important for me to come out and become famous and popular online. But when it comes to my Deen. It's an afterthought because Allah Ghafoor Rahim. Mm. This is a sad thing that we're facing. So mm.